Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day of rest, this day of worship, fellowship. Uh, We thank you for the mercy that is ever in front of us. Uh, your, Your mercy to us, your grace to us, your compassion and tender love. We pray that in this portion, we would respond uh, with joyful obedience. In Christ's name, amen. If you could turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I'd like to get someone to read verses 5 through 11. We began last week talking about church discipline and the purposes of church discipline. And one of the important, uh, one, of, one of the central, foundational uh, component to church discipline is often kind of overlooked. And the reason that it is overlooked is because so many people, when they're facing church discipline, just walk away. They just go and go to another church and... Uh, often, uh, we don't really recognize each other's discipline. So if the session says something to you that you find offensive, uh, saying that you need to do this or that, and you just say, well, you're not the boss of me and walk away, uh, that's kind of where the story ends, practically speaking. But one of the, one of the, purposes of this kind of instruction is for people who are in the church. Because, frankly, when the session steps in, in a situation, and begins to formally uh, start the discipline process, often it's the first time that anybody has ever really considered what church discipline is. Uh, they, we, we just assume that, you know, everything's going to be peachy keen and we're going to all love each other and, and then something bad happens and we look around and go, where did this come from? How, how is it that you have the authority to do this? And we get offended and walk away. So the, this, this chapter that we're looking at in the confession, chapter 30, uh, I hope is something that is preventative. Uh, that's the purpose of it being here, is to kind of help us to understand what it means to be a member of a church, what it means uh, to to be under the authority of a session. Uh, just a quick side note. When I very first came to Sterling, uh, there was a family that were not members, uh, and they had been in regular attendance forever, and but they were not members of the church. And so I reached out to them, and I said, listen, you know, I, I think you're delightful people. Uh, I really want to encourage you to become members of the church. And there was immediate pushback. I don't need to be a member. Uh, why, why do I need to be a member of the church? I'm fine the way that I am. And I said, well, it's because of church discipline. Uh, if, if you are not a member of the church, then there's no way for us to exercise church discipline. Uh, and, and this is a part of 
the duty of the Christian. And they got super offended and left, and so be it. Uh, but, but when we talk about church membership, all of the things that church membership, uh, the benefits, the, the, the family, the connection, the support, all of those things, this is also part of it. <laughs> this is also part of why we are called to pursue membership in the church. So, can someone read for me 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11? So, at the front, at at the front of our minds, when we are considering church discipline, should be, the very first thing, should be the honor of Christ, the glory of the gospel, obedience to Christ. But part of that honoring Christ, part of that obedience to the gospel, part of that upholding the glory of God, is... Restoring restoring the sinner. And this gets hard. This is where things get hard. Because, you know, you can read it in 2 Corinthians and you can say, yeah, you know, that doesn't really, that doesn't sound so up close and personal, uh, the, the restoring of the sinner. And in all likelihood, commentators believe that Paul is referring to 1 Corinthians where there's a man in the church that is sleeping with his father's second wife. And Paul says, this is ridiculous. This man should be turned over to Satan that he be taught not to blaspheme. In 2 Corinthians, he said, I wrote to you earlier saying that you needed to deal with sin in your midst, but now we have a repentant sinner, and you need to forgive, you need to embrace, you need to bring him back in. Now, imagine the congregation. Imagine the people in the congregation at that time. If I have, well, I'm a pastor, so I'm held kind of to a higher standard, but if, if I have an extramarital affair with someone in the church. Everybody knows about it. I have cheated with someone in the church. It's a scandal. It's horrible. And I, certainly as a minister, I should have my ministerial license completely removed, which is what we will do uh, if, if I cross that line. But, as a, as a member of the church, I have caused real pain. I've caused real division in the church. You'll never be able to look at me 
and not think, oh, that was that lady sitting over there is the one <laughs> that you know you you would always have your view colored by my sin and that's just natural that that is that is how it is going to be so my point in this is forgiveness and grace are Hard. It's a call to the congregation to spiritual maturity. To be able to look at someone that we know has committed some grievous sin. But that person has said, I repent, I was wrong. The church is commanded. Did you hear Paul's words there? Paul didn't say, I strongly encourage. (laughs) The church is commanded to restore the penitent sinner. And all this sounds really good on paper. Again, this this sounds very, very nice on paper. It is hard in practice. Because in practice... What happens when you are restoring the sinner? You've got this one person who has been defined, right? This person has committed some grievous sin. They have come under church discipline. They have been excommunicated from the church. And now they are repentant and they're asking to be restored. To the church. All of our focus has been on the person and their sin and their lack of repentance. But now, when we are restoring the sinner, do you see how the focus changes? It's no longer the person that is the responsible person here, it is everybody else in the congregation who is now responsible. Everybody else is responsible to welcome the sinner back in, to forgive, to restore. The duty is no longer on that person alone. It's now on the entire congregation. And that is where things get hard. It's, it's a, it's a difficult, it's a difficult, uh, standard to be held up to. In fact, I would say it's an impossible standard. How can we look at someone and truly separate their sin as far as the East is from the West? How can we look at someone and not always think, oh, that person. Now, let's take what is probably the the context for Paul. Uh, A guy has had an affair with a married woman in the church. The church excommunicates him. He comes back. He asks forgiveness. He desires to be restored. Should we immediately say, oh, 
all is forgiven, no worries, and we have no problem with you taking that lady out for lunch. No, we don't be stupid. <laughs> we don't be stupid in these things. Uh, we, we are called to exercise wisdom. Uh, if, if we know that there is a proclivity or that there has been a, you know, or, or let's say he doesn't take that lady out for lunch, but he starts talking to another lady. Uh, we step in. We say, hey, brother. <laughs> nope, nope. Uh, you've, you've clearly already demonstrated that this is a besetting sin. We, we are going to guard you from, from getting back into this situation. You, you set up appropriate measures uh, for the person who we know is given over to some, or has been given over to some particular sin. So, you know, we, you, you need to act responsibly. But that foundational issue is your duty, the command <laughs> to you to forgive and to welcome the sinner who is repentant. And I just, I, I, I hope I'm communicating <laughs> effectively how hard this is. So the term forgive and forget Forgive and forget is forgive and encourage to holiness. <laughs> and that's, so that, that's a good point actually. I've, I've said this often in, in other contexts. Here's the problem of forgiveness, okay? The problem of forgiveness is that you and I tend to think me forgiving you means this thing never happened. I, I'm just going to forget it. it. It never, ever happened. That's not realistic. That is just not realistic. So give me give me a second to finish it. Give me a second to finish it because I we'll end up at the same place. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> what forgiveness is saying is I am not going to define you by this offense against me. I'm not going to look at you and always think this is what that person did. That offense that you've committed against me or that you've committed against someone else, that offense is no longer going to be my definition of you. And if you'll think about that, you'll think about how hard that is to, to look at someone who has treated you badly, who has sinned against you, and truly from the heart say, I'm not going to define you by this offense. That is very, very difficult, but that's exactly how God looks at us. When he looks at us, he does not define us by the ways in which we have sinned against him. He defines us by his son, by Christ's perfect atonement. And, and that's one of the reasons it will come up in the sermon today. That's one of the reasons that the scripture uses the language of propitiation, that Christ is our propitiation. It's a, it's a technical term that refers to God's wrath against us 
being covered over. God is no longer angry with us. Well, the flip side of that is outside of Christ, what's God's attitude? He's angry. <laughs> His nostrils are flaring. He is, he cannot abide sin. He is angry at sin. And then when you and I repent, and, and so, so a corollary to that, when you and I repent, there's always a path back. Grace means there's always a path back. But it doesn't mean there are no consequences for that sin. And we see that in the physical arena. You know, I can be a young man who is completely given over to fornication, and I can catch a disease, and I can come to Jesus, and I can be forgiven, and and all my past is cleansed. But it doesn't mean he took away whatever that disease was that I contracted. Uh, I've still got to deal with that. I've got to deal with the consequences. Some, you know, we we see this. Uh, uh, I'm I'm thinking back to when Jeffrey Dahmer, uh, I think it was, gave an interview with uh, the guy from Focus on the Family, uh, and and basically blamed pornography for. You know, he he said he had gone down this path of pornography and it had reached this this grotesque. Uh, place that he was at, but that he had come to Christ, he had been forgiven, uh, he had repented, and he was facing the death penalty, and many Christians then began advocating for mercy for him, uh, because he had repented. And I remember at the time thinking, eh, no, there's consequences. Uh, there, there's consequence. I'm glad you repented. I hope to see you in heaven, uh, you know, Praise the Lord that, that a repentant sinner has come home, but you chopped up a lot of people and the state needs to exact justice uh, for, this, for this crime. But when we are saying to somebody else, I'm not going to define you by your sin against me, that's what Christ means. That, that's exactly what the Lord's Prayer means. When we are told, commanded by Christ, to pray to God, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In the same way that we are saying, I will not define you by this sin. I'm asking God not to define me by my sin. Uh, I'm, I'm asking God to forgive me my sin in the same way that I do others. And that's something to grow into. Uh, that, that's something, and, and I can tell you from personal experience, it's difficult. It's not an easy thing. It's not a, it's not a quick button that you push. You have to, you have to come back again and again and again and again and pray and ask for God's grace that I will not hold this against my brother. I'm commanded not to. Uh, I will not define my sister by the, the way in which she offended me or offended against me. And so the restoration, yes.
Yes. It certainly does. It certainly does make life easier. Uh, I guess maybe when I say it's hard, it's hard for me. Uh, it's hard for me to not always be thinking. Sure. Okay, so let's take the example of 1 Corinthians. Man sleeping with his father's second wife. Paul, 2 Corinthians, saying, you need to forgive and restore. I'm the guy that, that the man slept with my wife. He's actually my son. <laughs> my son slept with his stepmother. Is it easy for me just to say, God's going to balance the books? Well, <laughs> it could be. <laughs> it wouldn't be for me. It, it would be difficult. And Yeah, I think that's a great question. That, that's a that's where this wisdom issue gets tricky. Uh, but for instance, uh, if a man has been has been found guilty of some inappropriate behavior towards children, and comes and repents, and everything is is you know he, he's sought restoration and and all of that. I think we ought to still make sure that he's not placed in that position. Yeah, we're, we're saying that a man's proclivity needs to be guarded against. And, and I guess, yeah, so that, that's the tricky, it, it's a tricky thing between defining him by that sin versus saying, I'm going to guard you against the sin. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If if, <laughs> if I don't take precautions. Yeah. And so. And and it's a it's a tricky thing. It's a it's a tricky thing. And I think maybe maybe the solution is kind of in the the heart that embraces the center. The you know you can you can define someone. You can treat someone differently on the basis of the way you define them. 
maybe we could put it that way. So if there is someone that I know is always, uh, someone has a hair trigger. Someone, someone, ha- I know this person, they're an Irish redhead. <laughs> they, they have, they have a hair trigger temper. Uh, I know that all it takes is one wrong look, one wrong word, and boom, it's going to blow up. I'm not, I, I shouldn't define them as, you know, this person is first and foremost an angry person. But I should also, I mean, there are things, so, so here's an example. There are ways that I will tease with my wife. There are ways that I will tease with her that I don't tease other women. I'll say things that are chauvinistic. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll joke in front of other people to my wife, you know, a, a woman's job is to make sure my shirt is ironed. And she knows it's a joke, and I know it's a joke, and I'm being, you know, the caricature of a chauvinist and all that. But to walk up to a woman that I've just met and said, you know, a woman's job is to make sure her husband's shirt is ironed, (laughs) is no bueno. (laughs) That's going to get me in big trouble right out of the gate. And, And so there's, you know, there's wisdom. And we've got to be cautious. <laughs> we've got to be careful uh, that, that things that I assume that my wife would roll her eyes at and go, that's him being him, uh, are also not things that I would say <laughs> in, in other contexts. Uh, so I guess maybe that's the best way that I could get at the, at the challenge. It does. It does. Uh, yeah, trust comes into it. And... Uh, yeah, and that, that's one thing that actually I have walked with people through who have dealt with infidelity. Uh, when, when there has been infidelity in a marriage, my statement to the offended party is, okay, the ball is in your court. You now have biblical authority to pursue separation and divorce, or you have a biblical command to forgive and reconcile. Which path are you going down? Which, which way are we going here? And if they say, I want to forgive and reconcile, which thankfully I've heard, I've heard more than once, uh, I want to work through this, then, okay, we're going to work through it. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be years. But part of that is a commitment that you're not going to bring it up. Part of that is a commitment that you're not going to hold it against them. Part of that is a commitment that, you know, the next time this person walks out the door, I'm not going to call a detective and have them follow. But part of it also is a commitment that the offending party is now going to let you have full access to their telephone, uh, is now going to let you have full access to their social media, you know, whatever the, whatever the things were that uh, facilitated the, the infidelity. Um, and, and that trust takes some time to, to, to rebuild. Uh, and I've, I've seen, I've very much seen that exact thing in, in cases of infidelity. Uh, and, and I think, you know, in, in other cases, uh, 
I, I think of a situation in our own family uh, where we've we've had some some issues, and I hope one day there will be restoration. But in all honesty, if I got a phone call today saying I want you to forgive and forget, I would say I do forgive. But there's an awful lot of water under this bridge. Uh, it's going to take some time to heal. Uh, and but but that commitment to pursuing the healing is is I think the first step. About Oh, oh, yeah, okay. Well, Sure, sure. And well, which I don't do. <laughs> um, I'm not sure that scripture says no humor, uh, because Jesus Christ referred to Herod as a fox. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, the scripture does say coarse jesting. Coarse jesting should not even be named among you. And I think, I think we, or at least for me, I, it seems to me that I know what is coarse jesting and what is not coarse jesting. Coarse jesting in particular with regards to a woman is, I mean, there, there are boundaries. Uh, you don't, you don't cross boundaries in the, in the way that you interact with a member of the opposite sex. Sure. And it should not. It should not. And you're right. Uh, saying cruel things to people and covering it up by saying I, I was just a joke uh, is is inappropriate. Uh, hopefully my example is not one that's cruel, though. <laughs> All right. Well, um <laughs> So, looking over my notes on this, uh, I think that was pretty much, that, that pretty much sums up the chapter. I think we're, we're a minute or two over. Um, the, the last thing that I would point out there is in section four, for the better attaining of these ends, the officers of the church are to proceed by admonition. So the first step is admonishing the person. Second step, is suspension from the sacrament of the Lord's Supper for a season. And then third step is by excommunication from the church, uh, according to the nature of the crime and demerit of the person. And so at each phase, when, I, when we come and we admonish, we're looking for repentance. If there's no repentance, we suspend from the Lord's table. And we're looking for repentance. If there's no repentance, then we finally excommunicate and still look for repentance. So with that, let me close. I'm a minute or two order uh, over, and we will go into our time of fellowship. Father, we uh, do thank you that you've given to the church these very serious uh, guidelines, but 
guidelines that are necessary for the purity of the church, for the purity of the believers, and for reclaiming uh, those who have become hardened in their own sin. Uh, We pray that you would help each of us uh, to be faithful and to walk in your paths of righteousness. In Christ's name, amen.